Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. I'm joined today by Vicky Nisbet, AVP Comms and Media in the UK for Salesforce. Welcome to the show, Vicky. Hey, Michael. Good to be here. Well, today we're hearing uh, from your conversation with Darren Brown, the mentalist, illusionist, and best-selling author of Happy. Tell us a little bit more about this conversation. Well, it was absolutely fabulous, the whole experience. The guy's really incredible. I've been watching him for years on UK TV and have been very interested in his magic. But having the opportunity to really look into his book and see his opinions on other things really brought it to life for me, exactly the depth that he goes to. And he's got a really good view on things. I mean, I think it is so interesting that he comes from a very different place to write a book like Happy. And I'm not sure, did you talk about the journey of how he ended up writing the book or how he got there? Yeah, it's interesting, really, because his interest has always been on the mind and a lot of the magic that he does and the tricks that he does around manipulating the human mind. So really, I suppose happy is around control and how to identify various things within your mind. So first off was the idea that happiness is a journey, not a destination. I found that absolutely fascinating. Everybody talks about, oh, I need to be happy and what can I do to be happy? But actually, if we focus too much on getting there, we miss the journey. We miss the experience that takes us on the way. And it really made me stop and think about that. And even to some extent, adjust some of the things I think about what I do and how I live my life, because we need to take time to stop and smell the roses, you know, particularly in difficult times like now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How are you bringing some of this back to your work? And tell me how you're working right now. How is it different from how it used to be? Well, I think the strongest message for me out of the book, and I realized actually that I do this quite a lot naturally, was the lessons from the Stoics around being able to identify elements in your life that you have within your control, which is namely what you think and how you act, and separating that away from everything else that you can't control, which really brings to mind that you stop wasting energy trying to change things that are beyond your control and you focus on the, the way you react. And I've already had a meeting with my team in the UK where I've used this and quoted this as a way for them to start the new year because it's just, we're in a pandemic, we're unable to change any of that. But what we can do is approach it with a different attitude and look at the things that are within our control to make these things better because we all have to move forward. We all have to do our job, deliver our number, see our customers, speak to people. So what can we do to make that easier for us? And it's about being comfortable with those things that are beyond our control. Wonderful. And then is there anything that stands out that uh, folks may want to keep tuning in to listen to a key takeaway or anything? that you want to highlight? I would say listen to the podcast absolutely because if there's any time that you need lessons on how to get a little bit of happiness, it's right now. And his book and this conversation really does shed some light on how we can make the day-to-day -day much easier. Well, wonderful. I'm excited to listen to the interview. So let's hear your conversation with Darren Brown. My guest today is illusionist and mentalist Darren Brown. Darren has been manipulating the human mind on UK TV for the past 20 years. During that time, he's hypnotised a man to assassinate Stephen Fry. He stuck viewers at home to their sofas and successfully predicted the National Lottery. He achieved a first in the history of magic by selling out eight one-man shows. And he's written several best-selling books, including Happy, Why More or Less Everything is Absolutely Fine. 
In his spare time, if he has any, Darren paints remarkable portraits and is a keen photographer. So welcome, Darren. Wow, that was lovely. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite the accolade you've got going on there. (laughs) Quite an introduction. Yes, it's quite a busy career. Actually, one one of the nice things I think about, for me, what I do is that I've never quite managed to put a label on it, which has sort of allowed me to do lots of different things. But yeah, it's quite nice hearing them all uh, rattled off like that. Thank you. Absolutely. There's no putting you in the box, is there? So um, perhaps rather surprisingly, you studied law at uni or reluctantly studied it, should I say? Yeah, that's right. I did law and German and in Bristol and graduated in 94. That's quite the choice. Quite a choice. Yeah, well, I realised very early on I didn't want to be a lawyer or a German. But I, by the end of my first year I started doing hypnosis and doing shows and things for students and hypnotizing people just in my spare time and that took over really so I continued with the course but I had no interest in doing anything really beyond that with it. And where did the interest in the mind and hypnosis come from? I saw a hypnotist in my first year a guy called Martin Taylor who was performing at the students union and Since then, I've realised most hypnosis shows are pretty sort of tacky affairs, and this wasn't actually. It was very funny and very entertaining, but managed to strike that note where you're not really laughing at anyone. You're just sort of laughing out of a kind of amazement at the situations that are developing. You know, telling somebody, I remember he told someone that they've, you know, forgotten the number seven, for example, and there's nothing embarrassing about that. But when you watch somebody struggle to, like they're counting five fingers on one hand and five fingers on the other hand, and they know that five add five is 10, but when they count through their fingers, they keep getting to 11 because they're skipping seven. And when you watch that sort of thing play out and you're watching genuine sort of bafflement, it was sort of jaw-dropping, and he did lots of things like that and had a time for questions afterwards. And, and I just came home that night and thought, well, I'm going to learn how to do this. I think it ticked a lot of boxes that I didn't quite know I had as well in terms of wanting to perform and also the sort of control aspect of it, I think probably was appealing at that age as well. I think it was giving me a lot. Uh, so I, I just sort of dedicated myself to learning it. And that was the sort of the mind thing, because I did law at university as well. And I was wondering, because I know you have to learn 200 cases before every exam. I was thinking maybe that's where the memory thing came from. How did you tie together all those points of law with cases? It did. It did, actually. Well, actually, I, I got into that kind of stuff beforehand, I suppose, with my A-levels. And I remember I my approach to learning whatever history and those kind of those syllabi was to reduce and reduce and reduce. So, you know, I'd kind of work out a series of bullet points and then each one of those bullet points would have a sort of, you know, an initial would be reduced to a sort of a single letter that would reflect that point. And then that, those letters I'd make a kind of a, there were six of those points so six initials, six letters, I'd kind of make a word or an idea from those letters. And then I'd end up with a bunch of those words or ideas. So I then reduce those to it. Like that was a series of bullet points. Then I'd do the same again and the same again. And I'd keep reducing to in the end, I would just have one word or strange image that could kind of explode out into an entire syllabus. Of course, it meant nothing to me. I mean, these, I mean, this is for subjects that I didn't find that interesting, but it was just a way of learning vast amounts of information. I found the same with law, as you'll probably feel the same as me. One of the strange things about learning law is that unlike pretty much any other subject, when you can use, even if you don't, you know, go into a career with it, you can at least retain and usefully have some bits of information bouncing around in your head relating to, I don't know, geology or philosophy or whatever it is you do. But with law, you kind of, A, you forget most of it because it's so dry. And then the bits you do remember, you can never sort of 
advise anybody on those things or even try and be helpful because the law's probably changed in the meantime. So, you know, it could be really counterproductive. So it was an utter waste of time, apart from a kind of analytical mindset that it taught me. But I do remember using these same kind of memory techniques and so on a lot with learning law. So, you know, you've kind of got a case name and then you've got what the case meant and what it was about. And then you've got kind of the year. Those are the three bits of information that you want to kind of remember. So I was playing around with sort of fun ways of doing that. I should have known you then, for sure. Yeah, well, yeah. but I was never in the library. I was never one of those people that was swatting away in the library. And it was interesting to me that after I graduated, and I was sort of thinking back and seeing people's results and so on come in, that actually the people that were in the library swatting away all the time tended to not do so well. And I think perhaps a lot of it is just to do with that. It's just less efficient memorization. Yeah. And do you remember any of them now? That's the question. Not so much now, but the trouble with those sorts of techniques, you do have to review them. You have to kind of um, run back through them. So no, not really. Because the bits I do remember. I know, me neither. I think I've got Carlyll and the Carbolic Smoke Ball Company. (laughs) That's about it. Oh, God, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had a great criminal law lecturer who who brought all that stuff alive. But uh, that's, that's great you did it too. But yeah, all best forgotten. Useful skills, though, definitely. I think I, I did law because I um, liked winning arguments and wanted to be in LA law, and neither of which <laughs> came into fruition. So uh, you got a career out of it, which is at least something. And I guess um, when it comes to career choices, you've come a long way since doing law in, in Bristol. How have you made the choices along the way? I remember very clearly never having had any sort of ambition at all. I remember by the time I graduated, not wanting to be a lawyer. I was doing in doing the odd sort of gig and I managed to get so those gigs where you do close up magic around tables. I was doing a lot of magic by this point as well, round tables in restaurants and occasionally people's parties. So I was just about getting by. I had a student flat that I was living in and wasn't spending much money. So from that first day after graduating, it never occurred to me to be doing anything other than what was enjoyable and comfortable on a sort of day-to-day level. And I sort of remember thinking, I want to be able to take a cross-section of my life at any point and go, is everything feel about right and in, in the right place? And if it isn't, it would be easy to shift one or two little things to make that happen, as opposed to thinking forward and thinking to any sense of, you know, where I wanted to be in however many years' time. I never had that. And that served me well. I think at the time and growing up for a bit, it felt like maybe I'm not a proper grown-up because that didn't seem to be how other people thought. And even as I got into doing the TV, I was surrounded by people that were very concerned with things like, you know, viewing figures and five-year plans for my career and all of that. And I still couldn't really see past a sort of much, something a bit more rooted, I guess, in the here and now and in what I found just personally rewarding. And as I got a bit older, I started to read the Stoics, which I'm sure we'll get onto, that, which led to this book on happiness I wrote, it actually kind of nicely articulated some of those sorts of feelings I had that I was worried. I was worried I was just like a kid in a world of grown-ups. And actually, I started to think, well, maybe maybe some of those ways of thinking do actually have some real use. So it served me well. I've never decided anything, made any decisions as far as that goes beyond just what feels right in the moment. Sounds like the right philosophy to me, though. I mean, if it all feels good in the moment, then you're doing the right thing. And what's interesting, I suppose, from your career is that's led to so many different things. And, you know, going from magic to some of the mind games, shall we say, that you do now is quite phenomenal, really. So that sense of happiness or feeling happy in the moment has been with you for a long time then. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the living in the present moment and so on does get a bit sort of 
fetishized nowadays, but there's something in it. There's a lovely thing by Alan Watts, who was uh, kind of the, one of the first thinkers to introduce Eastern ideas to the West, and there's a lot of lovely talks from him on YouTube. But he sort of made the point that when we watch a film or read a book, we don't just skip to the end because that's when it all comes together. When we listen to a piece of music, you know, we don't just sort of get to the end bit first and listen to that. But we're sort of obsessed with endings in life, you know, which is true, isn't it? We often choose our GCSEs even because we're thinking about what A-levels we want to do. We're thinking about what A-levels because we've got a sense of what we want to do at university because of what job we probably want to have and then how that what that would lead to if we get promotions and where that career could head. To what, you know, what is this point in our, what, 50s or something when it's supposed to all kind of come together? We're just deferring pleasure and maybe life is more like a piece of music and maybe we're supposed to be dancing. Yeah, I like that. It's, it certainly made me think a lot about happiness as a destination being the wrong mm. thought to have. And actually, it's the journey that counts, most definitely. So is that what sort of triggered you into wanting to write a book about it? Because it's it's quite a jump to think, all right, I'm going to get my pen out and start <laughs> committing it to paper. Exactly. I was reading Montaigne, who's a sort of big French Renaissance essayist, and he kept referring back to the Stoics and Seneca in particular is one of the major Stoic thinkers. And I didn't really know who this was. So I just, I stopped with the Montaigne and shifted to the Stoics. And like a lot of these ancient Greek and Roman texts, they are surprisingly accessible and surprisingly modern and immediate and not at all stuffy and academic. So I kind of, and also there aren't that many Stoic writers. It's sort of quite a, a small world really so it's quite easy to, to dive into quite deeply and then this philosophy stoicism became the most particularly the romans sort of took it on and really popularized it and it became the most popular school of thought to the extent that when christianity took over and exploded into the scene it had to win those stoics over because it was so popular so that means that some of the stoic ideas have sort of come through to us over the last couple of thousand years and are still sort of familiar but then they've gained a kind of slightly hackneyed cliched quality because of it but actually back in the day they were thought through at a level they're not so much nowadays it articulated something that and I think we all feel this with things that inspire us or uh, you know that we kind of latch onto it's normally it's articulating something that we feel in our gut but we haven't quite found the language for and essentially I suppose it stands in such direct opposition to what we're told happiness is about and should be about there's a sort of modern sort of an American model. It's based around optimism. It's based around self-belief and setting goals. And if you believe in yourself enough and set your goals clearly enough and so on, that the universe will somehow provide. And that's this sort of model that's in the air and has been for a while. And it misses the or ignores the big fact that the universe doesn't care, you know, has no interest yeah. in our plans. And the Stoics, I suppose their bottom line was that life is about making peace with the fact that all this stuff happens that is out of our control. And if we try and control things that are not under our control, we're just going to make ourselves anxious and unhappy and frustrated, which makes sense. And so the, that was really a, a much more kind of, I think, realistic approach. There's a sort of strategic note of pessimism in there, I guess. But actually, it's very, very helpful. Rather than being bleak, it's, it is actually, I think, a very helpful and robust position to take or way of thinking, not necessarily all the time or to take it on as an identity, but as a tool, I think it's very helpful. Yeah, I, I actually, I couldn't agree more. I, I went on quite the journey with your book. At the outset, I 
fixated a little bit much on the outcome element and you were saying outcomes are wrong and and I'm in sales so everything for me is about targets and quotas and even in my private life in my personal life I tend to set myself a goal for the year and climb a mountain or cycle a distance or do something like that and yet you seem to be saying it was wrong and then over the evolution of the book and as I was reading it there was so much that I absolutely identified with particularly this separation of what I can control versus what I can't and I think it gives a feeling of peace in a way. Once you recognize the things you can't control and you put them to one side, they might still be bad and they might still upset you, but it's easier to deal with them when I'm not trying to change them. And I think that message really has resonated. Yes, absolutely. Well, there's two things there. So talking about goals first, because that's quite a big subject. So there's obviously nothing wrong with certain types of goals and particularly short-term goals. Like if you want to learn a language or drive a car or, you know, pass a test, a bit of, you know, goal setting obviously makes sense. The problem comes when we make long-term goals that stretch over chunks of our lives as if we know now what's going to make us happy in, you know, a decade or 20 years or 30 years, whatever. The danger is you can spend a life climbing a ladder and then realize you, you had it against the wrong wall. So there's lots of reasons why it doesn't really work very well. If we don't achieve the goal, then we can feel like we've failed and now we've got to add failure and our own sense of failure to a list of problems. But also, interestingly, when we do achieve the goal, if we do, that brings with it a whole load of potential problems at all. I have a, a very good friend who ran a company for a few decades. It was a production company, TV production company that he wanted to make very successful. And he did. And he was really driven by this desire and kind of, you know, need to do this. And he did an amazing job with it and sold it and retired early and was immediately depressed because what he'd missed in that is that actually the process of building this company was what gave his life a huge amount of meaning and a sense of affirmation and a sense of all, all those things that he wanted. And of course, all that went out the window. It wasn't actually getting there. It was, and I know it's a cliche to say it, but it was the journey. It was the step-by-step process of that thing that's, that's bigger than you that gave his life meaning and gives all of our lives meaning. And the actual arrival will give you a moment of that. It's, been, it's like taking a backpack off after that heavy journey. Like you'll have a moment of relief, but it's not really the point. And we miss these things. We miss these things because it's very easy to think ahead and go, well, this is what I'll want in however many years' time. So there are real problems, I think, with, with that. So we have to pick apart the goal-setting thing a bit. So talking about the control thing, because it is important, I think there are, there are two really big and useful aspects to Stoicism, which sound, as I say, a little familiar because they have they have drifted up to us through uh, the last couple of millennia, but they're really worth unpicking. So the first thing is that it's not events in the world that really cause our problems. It feels like it is, but what it actually is, is the bit we do in between the event happening and our response to it. So the story we tell ourselves about what's happened or the judgment that we make about that thing doesn't normally feel like it. It normally feels like it's that thing having a direct, sort of forcing us into a certain response. But if you can imagine somebody else responding differently to the same event, then you know, there's all the proof you need that it's it's not the thing itself. So if we can sort of get our heads around that, that gives us a little bit of room to see, you know, where we can kind of maneuver a bit, as opposed to thinking we're just at the mercy of these things. So with that in mind, the big thing and the thing you're talking about here is this stoic notion of going, well, if we try and control the things that are not under our control, we're going to make ourselves unhappy and frustrated and anxious. And the whole stoic notion of happiness is about 
avoiding unnecessary anxiety, which is sort of a negative way of flipping it around, but it's quite useful because if you try to approach happiness directly, it's very hard to define. And it's like a, you know, a rainbow is a good image for happiness. It just gets further and further away the closer you get to it, which of course is what we do in life. We think, oh, I want this. And as you approach that thing, it, what you actually want drifts a bit further away or you have it for a bit and it's exciting for a bit, but then you quickly adapt and climatize and you look into the next thing. So your, your image of what's going to make you happy is always a little bit on the horizon. So the Stoics approached it kind of indirectly and said, well, let's see it as a sort of a psychological robustness, a resource of tranquility and, a, and an avoidance of unnecessary disturbance. So if you're going to not control the things that are not under your control, what does that leave? Well, it leaves the things that are under your control, and those are your thoughts and your actions. So this is the stoic fork, if you like. Which side of the line is this problem on? Is it in the line of things I can control, my thoughts and actions, or is it sort of out there, what other people do, what they think, outcomes that I may have no real control over? And if it's on the other side of the line, the trick is to decide that it's fine as it is because you can't control it. By its nature, you can't change it. So rather than try to and drive yourself mad, the trick is to decide that it's fine. Now, this does sound a bit complacent when we first hear it. And there are, um, sometimes it might be, but I think, again, we can unpack it again in, in a moment a bit more. But first of all, that's the basic idea. So for example, you know, somebody's driving us mad and annoying us and bothering us and we can't sleep and da 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 da. So the thought is, how is it fine if this person is a dick? Or how is it fine if this person hates me? Or how could it just be fine if dot, dot, dot? And if you ask that question of yourself or of the situation sincerely, and you kind of let the answer drip into your soul, as opposed to just going, okay, it's fine, it's fine. You know, that's not enough. But if you really let it drip in, as it were, there's a sort of potential there for a real kind of relief. But you have to have a sort of faith in the fact that nothing bad happens if you decide that that thing is fine. That's the leap. So you, you start with little things and then you realise, oh yes, it does actually work quite well. It's interesting, uh, you call it a trick as well. There's a trick or a knack to it because I think it's one of those things where absolutely logically it makes perfect sense. But if you layer in emotion or you're in a chimp or whatever you want to call it, I would guess it takes practice to really benefit from this because you know, your emotions take over, don't you? You immediately react and then that changes the scope of things anyway. So, Absolutely. But then if you try it with little things that are actually quite manageable, so like big problems in your relationships and so on, they're kind of a bit much to go to in, in the first instance. But those little things that bother us and bug us are great places to start. And then you pay attention to, there's a sort of muscle memory to this, you, you pay attention to the feeling of relief that those things do bring. For me, it feels, I'm talking of you know, emotional responses, it feels to me like that feeling you have when you were a kid and you woke up on a Saturday morning thinking you had to go to school, then you remembered it was Saturday and you didn't have to go. And there's that kind <laughs> yeah. of like, wow. That, and I, I still get that. with something that's been bugging me for a long time and I catch myself thinking, hang on, which side of the line is this? Oh, it's that side of the line. In which case, what if I just decide it's fine? So look, that, that, it's, it's a very useful thing, but it does need a little bit of unpacking because something else goes, it can't be that simple. And yeah. the, the, what it brings up, of course, are those areas in life that are, feel more ambiguous, like what about success and um, what about matters of social injustice and things we genuinely want to change in the world? I mean, they're outside of our thoughts and actions. They're things that are out there in the world. Does that mean we just decide they're fine as they are? Well, clearly not, because that is going to 
that does sound very complacent, and it is. But again, you just apply the same exercise at a finer detail. So what aspect of this social injustice or this, this situation that's out there that needs changing can I control? Well, I can control my actions. What I can't control is the outcome. I can go into this situation and do the very best that I can to change it. But it might be that the actual result I like is going to happen a generation after I'm dead. I mean, who who knows, depending on what the problem is. So it's high intention, low expectation is is, is the key. Almost like a ripple effect, even though it's tiny and I might just say to somebody, no, you can't say that, it's inappropriate. The ripple effect is it might impact people upon people upon people because everybody is impacted. Well, yes, but also it may be more than that. It may be absolutely, uh, you know, taking a grand stage about it. It's not necessarily about, well, I'll just do my little bit. I mean, it might be about I will devote my life to taking a very high profile public stance on something. But you're still separating what you can do from the outcome, because if you don't and the outcome is, you know, you're having trouble getting there, it's going to make you bitter and it's going to make you angry. And those things will actually get in the way of what an effective job you'll do. I think a good analogy I heard for it was playing tennis. Like if you go into a game of tennis thinking I must win, I must win. You are trying to control something you're not in control of, which is the outcome. And if your opponent's better than you, you probably start to feel anxious and you'll feel that you're failing and those things will affect your game. Whereas if you go in thinking, I'm going to play as well as I possibly can to the very best of my abilities and your opponent's better than you, you're not going to you know, have the same feelings of anxiety and failure and you will play better. And I've, I've, I have heard from tennis players, this is, this does work. It is a better way of, of going in. So that's, is a sort of a big chunk of, of the stoic idea. And then from that, some really interesting things come out of it, which are so against the kind of modern ideas of what we should be doing to be happy, like lowering your expectations. I love that. It really makes sense. I mean, so much of our frustration comes from expectations we had that just actually turned out to be unrealistic. So no wonder we're angry and frustrated because somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. Well, they may have said they were going to, but whoever said that they were going to keep to their word? Okay, so let's if we if we look at it from the other way, and that we are in a world of positive mental attitude, and you know everybody's striving for things and to be famous and all these gubbins, and you go on the telly. And in your book, you mentioned the secret, which is a you know self help book. It's millions of copies sold, very popular, which is in effect about positive mental attitude, isn't it? It's the idea that we can make things happen if we're positive enough. You're a bit skeptical of that. Do you want to share a bit your views on that? Yeah, well, the the, the secret is sort of very much this model that I'm talking about that I think is wrong. And it's based on, well, the whole American optimistic model, first of all, is based on Calvinism, which in turn was a sort of, so it was like a hard Protestant work ethic. And there was a reaction against that in the 19th century, which led to something called the New Thought Movement, which sort of tried to turn it on its head and and tried to free people up from this sort of Catholic, this sort of this Protestant work ethic, but actually kind of maintained this sort of intense, rigorous self-discipline and punishment. And and it's come down to us now in this form of we have to constantly believe in ourselves fully and have faith in ourselves and believe that we can achieve anything. And we have to keep on this sort of treadmill. So it's a strangely sort of religious uh, roots. So the what's happening with the secret? So the secret is this idea of, you know, you have your like dream boards or something, you know, you, you, yeah, um, the art of attraction, you, you, the art of attraction, exactly. Yeah, right. you, you put yeah. it out in the universe and yeah. the universe will provide, but you have to really bring your cars and things. <laughs> exactly. So this is, and I've seen this again and again, this, it's the same structure as a faith healer, as in those kind of evangelical faith healers. I've spent a lot of my yeah. career sort of looking into 
telling you to throw away your pills. So this is a classic thing. So you, you have somebody come up on stage and you have them bouncing around and saying they're healed, not because they're playing along, but because of the adrenaline of the situation. Adrenaline is an amazing painkiller. Plus a lot of things we suffer from are kind of patterns that we get caught up in. And actually, if we're suddenly told that we healed and then challenged to, you know, how does it feel now? How does your back feel now? Sometimes, especially when we're on stage with all that adrenaline, we go, oh God, it's actually fine because we hadn't really paid attention. So you have a momentary thing which may really not last more than, you know, the 10 minutes the person's on stage. And then very commonly the cry is, throw away your pills. You don't need them anymore. The Lord will heal you. And if the Lord doesn't heal you, if this, if this disease or if this condition returns, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And as you can imagine, that's a very destructive cycle yeah. for somebody to get caught up in. And it's exactly the same structure of the secret and so on. And she says it very explicitly uh, in the book that if the universe doesn't provide, it's because you didn't believe in it enough and you didn't commit yourself enough to the belief. So, for example, you it's always about money, sadly. It's always about money and wealth. Yeah. So if you wanted a new you want a big new shiny car, a big new expensive car. So you're gonna build yourself a big garage to put it in, you're gonna buy all the other stuff you need around it, you're gonna act like you've already got it and throw out this kind of absurd level of, of belief and commitment and the universe will provide it. And if it doesn't, if you don't get this great car, if it doesn't sort of magically arrive somehow, then you haven't committed enough to that. So obviously it's destructive and it doesn't, it just simply doesn't serve us. And again, and there are plenty of people that say, well, they've, they've done this. I spoke to somebody who had, you know, started up a business, had started up a cafe and they really set their goals and they did the whole dream board thing and they put it yeah. out in the universe and now they're running a cafe and that's that is great and that's you know that's wonderful and clearly sometimes having a clear vision for ourselves and kind of clarifying that sense of purpose and so on is is very useful but the problem is for all of those people that it works out well for there are many more that it doesn't and all you're then doing is adding well you failed it's never the system's fault it's never a sort of a bug in the system it's just you you failed, you didn't do it properly. It doesn't need to be like that. That doesn't need to be how we get by. You know, there are other, there are other far better ways of, you know, finding. Uh, no, I agree. The interesting thing, I wonder how you feel about the bit that spans between that kind of faith and the faith that people have to have in you when you're doing, particularly your shows. So if we take your miracle show, I got to ask you this because the woman with the light bulb, I mean, I think there's something about you being very authentic and genuine and there's a confidence that's coming off you. But as she's chewing that light bulb, she's looking at you with absolute terror because she's thinking I'm chewing a light bulb, but she believes you completely. You've told her it won't hurt her and she can swallow it. So how do you get somebody, a stranger, to do something so dramatic based on just you? Well, again, don't ignore the power of being on stage. It's a very odd and baffling thing to stepping up on stage in front of a couple of thousand people, particularly as you realize that you can't see them because when you're on stage, you've got a spotlight in your face. So actually all you see is blackness in the spot, unless the house lights come up. So they come up on stage, they're literally in the spotlight, but there's nothing to distract them and they are desperate for clear direction from me. So it's a very good hypnotic situation. And I found ways of hypnotizing people very rapidly as they come up on stage, just working on that momentary bewilderment, which, by the way, is no different from a politician giving us loads of statistics and things we can't quite follow, and then going, so therefore, dot, dot, yeah. dot, and giving us the conclusion. We're going to believe that a lot more readily than if it started off the speech with the same conclusion, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you induce bewilderment and bafflement and then um, then tell people what you want them to do. And 
it's be very hard for them in that situation to kind of go no and plus i'm looking after them and i'm you know very sort of present with them so that, that to me really i mean maybe from the outside it looks like how on earth do you get people to do those things to me that's it never i never question that, it's, that they're going to do it and in the larger scale tv experiments i've done where people are you know on a kind of a track to toward doing something shooting someone or saving a life or, oh the or push you've got to talk about the push the push the push I, yes. I just can't believe it people were reacting like that it's unbelievable with those programs i'm surrounded by a production team that are normally new or most of them are new for each one of those shows so they also have the same thing of like how is this going to work and i'm the common denominator that's done them all over the years and i just sort of i'm always very comfortable that they will it's a just to me i don't even question the fact that that it will it will happen or at least that we'll get to the point as in so the push for example is without spoiling the ending too much if people haven't seen it but there's it's sort of um goes to an interesting thing at the end as to whether or not is this person going to do this thing or not and um oh, i don't want to say what happens no it? don't don't because uh, it's, but, it's yeah. too good people do have to watch it it's very good which i guess begs the question where next where next well at the moment so as i said the last few months i've been like painting which has been lovely so i've painted all my life i paint these big portraits but now uh, for the first time, I'm kind of I've had exhibitions before, but I've never really tried to sell them. But now I'm, now I'm I sell them, so I've got them all over my Instagram and Twitter and so on. So that's kind of at the moment what's filling my time. I've written this book, A Little Happier, which is a shorter version of the Happy Book that we've been talking about. It's essentially the same book, but I just rewrote it in a much more condensed way because it felt like Happy is quite a big commitment that mm-hmm. the book is, and A Little Happier is you know more of a pocket-sized thing. So as long as this sort of continues, I'll just be writing and painting. But there is this tour, Showman, which I was supposed to be doing the moment lockdown started back in March. So that will be going on the road right. in the UK as soon as we're allowed, I suppose, which yeah. at the moment is a sign. Can I read you've been on tour every year since 2003? Yeah. So this has to happen this year so you don't break your um, I know. your run. <laughs> no, I really, I, I kind of miss it. The last couple of years... I did a Broadway run last year. That was that was a kind of a bit of a shift, which was sort of amazing and, and odd and strange and lovely. Uh, but now I'm yeah back here and, and kind of eager to get on with it. It's a very enjoyable thing to spend your life doing. It's you know if you like movement and change as well, it's nice. I get to work with a lovely group of people and and then get to go out and be this very polished and charismatic version of myself, my real self every every night. Well, I mean, it's the thing, isn't it? Because you're not. You know, it must be a big thing to be on stage, like you say, in front of 2,000 people, but you don't come across as a, you know, out there, full of yourself person at all. You're very um, reserved. And so it wouldn't necessarily match, would it? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that stoic thing of not trying to control things you're not in control of is the opposite of what I do for a living, which is, you know, (laughs) controlling other people and things that I can't. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, being like that in real life would be just uh, intolerable, being like I am on on stage. I mean, it's fine for for that context, but in real life it would be just unbearable for everyone, including me. So, yeah, I'm probably a little on the shy side in real life, but there's something very nice about having your, your, your need for attention sort of funneled into your job. Like, that's quite a nice... And also I've grown out of the... When I was younger, I, I, you know had to always show people tricks and had to always had to be like the most impressive person in the room, which of course may be the least uh, impressive person in the room because we don't <laughs> like people that are trying to be impressive. And I, that fact had sort of eluded me uh, when I was younger. So I think I've grown out of that, but anything I do have like that now is nicely taken up really with the, uh, 
with performing, which I really enjoy, but it is this sort of oddly polished version of yourself, which is very well rehearsed and it's just, it's, it's a real pleasure to do. But then during the day, I'm normally, I'm normally writing. I normally sort of find myself a cafe somewhere and, and um, get on with book writing. And that, I, to me, that's just a really glorious rhythm that I could, I could do forever. Sounds like a great balance, actually. Yeah. So a, a bit of out there and a bit of in here, which is lovely, isn't it? Lovely, yeah. Yeah. And I guess from a COVID perspective, if we dare mention that word, mm. I mean, one great horror for me is theatres being closed. I mean, I've had, you know, five tickets come back or something for different mm. events. How do, do you think we're ever going to get to that place where we can pack out theatres and enjoy live shows? I certainly hope so. Yes, of course it will. It's just how and when and then which shows can run if you've got a socially distanced audience. Like my one can't, for example. I couldn't, I can't no. really do it if, if that's how it would be because I need, well, also I need to have contact with people and the, you know, there's all sorts of things that would be very hard to get around. So there's also one thing which, uh, going back to Stoicism for a minute, Stoicism has its edges, I think, and it's a weak point of it is it doesn't have much to say about feelings of, community and things to do with sort of reaching out, you know, kindness and so on. It's very much about robustness and pulling a center of gravity within and all those things that are so important. But there is this other world of, um, you know, connecting with other people is also hugely important. And I think it's always been a thing uh, for me that the points in life that are difficult are inevitable for all of us. You know, we life has this centripetal aspect to it and that it pulls us towards the center. And the center is always difficult and it's it's hard and it's muddy and 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 uh and when we're in those places whatever that those moments are or periods of our lives are we they always feel very isolating and they feel like we failed and we feel like all those all those things we were talking about but the reality is of course they are they are the times when life is showing its its real weight like this is this is life without the distractions and the things that were you know happen to be keeping us happy and and largely distracted so they're actually the point that connect us up the most even though we feel the most isolated and what this lockdown has done is played that out in a very literal way that you know here we are we are literally physically isolated and yet we're all sharing in something that's a very human global extraordinary experience i remember when when the lockdown first lockdown lifted i went to a shop around the corner to get my jacket taken up and i've been going there for years and uh it was the first place I'd gone to where I could talk to like a, a you know people in a, in a business like that about what had, what had happened, and um, I instinctively felt like I just wanted to give them a big hug and go, <laughs> oh my God, what was it like for you and what happened and and just sort of you know share stories of it all because it had been such a bizarre you know it all felt like we were living in a film like a like you know a zombie yeah. movie all those sort of things we were all going through, and that's a really important thing I think because what it does it. Generally in life, like forgetting COVID for a moment, but generally in life, those moments, they feel like tragedies when we reach those points in life that are difficult. And that sense of tragedy is, is actually turns out to be wrong. What we should have is a feeling of a sort of melancholy, a kind of understandable sense that, well, this is part of the structure of, of life. And what melancholy does, as opposed to the sort of sting of personal tragedy, is it lets us reach out it kind of connects us with other people and connects us with something that is shared so for me that's it's a very unstoic thought it's sort of the opposite of all of that but in that life is you know is ambiguous and full of things that conflict I think that's a good thing that it doesn't fit with that at all but I I think I I think it's very important and I think it's important to remember that after all of this 
if we can. Of course, we're very good at just resetting and forgetting these sorts of things. But those things that are difficult and isolating in life across the board are by, it's, are by the nature of the things that connect us. It's like a psychic rattling off a load of insecurities and things that everybody has. And we go, oh my God, that's me. How do they know so much about me? They can, it's like they've read my diary. And it's not. It's just stuff that everybody feels. And it's, it's really worth, I think, retaining that. It's a lovely thought to have. I, I know conversations on Zoom calls with friends, people are saying, you know, what's your, what's your good thing from lockdown? Everybody's now kind of trying to lift and come together and think, well, actually, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have that relationship or I wouldn't have, for me, my eldest daughter's come home. So I've been able to form a different relationship with her completely than I would have had before because she's been traveling for so long. So it feels very sort of... Um, split spirit or what have you that we're all yeah. coming out with this this was a good thing because without it I wouldn't have had that and I think maybe you know your book happy is a way of helping people to understand that because COVID's the big uncontrollable thing isn't it we're all trying to battle it well there's nothing we can do about it we can just stay at home and wait and we're also getting a sense I mean obviously everyone has a different relationship to this lockdown and for some people it's just you know <laughs> devastating on a, on a daily level but Certainly for most of us, there is a sense that we're learning a bit about what we actually like and want and need. You know, I'm sure you've had that feeling of all the things you thought you were going to miss turned out not to have been important. And then things maybe you hadn't thought about that turned out to be really lovely to reconnect with. And when your limitations placed on you, you the decisions you make about what you want to do, you're, you're sort of like... You just, I think there's a certain amount of authenticity we get back in touch with, which is only really happens when our, when our kind of horizons are, are a bit restricted. So, yeah, I think deep in it all, there's some, there is some wisdom to mine. No, I'd agree. Absolutely. It shows, um, shows you what you're made of when you're dealing with this, this stuff like this. So I guess any, any last bits of advice, given what you know and what you've read about? Floss. Sorry? Floss, very important. Always Floss. floss. <laughs> I think that's it. I I think that stoic thing of just uh yeah is this thing under my control or not? Uh is it in my thoughts and actions or is it outside of that in which case what if it was just fine? What how, how could it just simply be fine? I think it's a really helpful thought balanced with these things that feel hard in life, difficult and lonely and isolating are very likely if not shared in exactly the same form, shared in very similar form yeah. uh, universally. Yeah. I think those are two truths that are worth paying more attention to. No, absolutely. I absolutely agree. Well, it's been fabulous talking to you. It really has. Thank you oh, so likewise. much for your time. It's been great. Thank you very, very much for having me on. It's been a real, real pleasure, Vicky. Thank you. Wonderful. That was Darren Brown speaking with Salesforce AVP of Comms and Media for the UK, Vicky Nisbet. For more wellness resources and great interviews from our Be Well Together series, head over to sfdc.co slash wellbeing. That's sfdc.co slash wellbeing. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for listening.